we bought two llamas off of uh, Craigslist. Mm-hmm. The llama is a logo animal, right? Um, and then we, we took those llamas and went on college campuses. Normally, when you try to market something on a campus, uh, you know, you get shut down by campus security immediately. You can't hand out any flyers and you just get, you know, ushered off. But with these llamas, it was incredible. They're just so weird. We had campus police taking selfies with the llamas and just letting us be because they really didn't have a standard operating procedure like how to deal with that lifestyle. <laughs> so it, it, it was amazing. We had people like lining up and you know normally like when you try to hand out flyers people are like ah oh, whatever you know and they like dump it in the, in the trash bin like but here we had people like coming up to us saying hey wh- what is this all about like what do you guys do and so you had your like 10 second window to pitch. This is Chris Reynolds and welcome to the Entrepreneur House podcast. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for six and seven figure entrepreneurs creating events and retreats all over the world. Picture yourself spending four weeks with other high level entrepreneurs in the northern mountains of Thailand, October 26th to November 24th, 2017. It will be full of masterminds, workshops, advisors, like-minded entrepreneurs, and of course, some fun adventure. Currently, we are offering a special early bird discount of $400 for only 10 people. Once they're filled, they're gone. Don't wait on this one, guys. If you're ready to take your business to the next level with other successful entrepreneurs, be sure to contact us ASAP at theentrepreneurhouse.com. And now on to today's episode. Ever thought about mixing your passion, charity, and business together? As this is a dream for many, I would say there aren't a lot of entrepreneurs that make it to this point. Today's guest is Stefan Jacobs, who is the founder of Cotopaxi.com. Cotopaxi is an outdoor adventure apparel company that has built its brand through outdoor adventure races while consistently giving a portion of their revenue to help eliminate poverty. Starting just three years ago, Stefan and his partner launched this idea with some genius strategy and marketing that have had incredible success. Today, we will talk about how Cotopaxi started with just one adventure race in 2014 on a college campus, and it has grown to where they hold 60 adventure races all around the U.S. and Canada. It's an incredible episode. Without further ado, let's welcome Stefan to the show. Stefan, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Oh, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you for coming on the show, and I'm excited to have you because you're a fellow adventure entrepreneur, which I love people that mix all the things that you have done, adventure, entrepreneurship, and charity. So my hat's off to you for creating such a cool business. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. We want to start off by just hearing your story. I've heard a little bit about you, but I'm sure the listeners are interested. So we'll give you the mic and let you take it away. Yeah, you bet. So I'm uh, originally from Germany. I grew up in a small village just outside of Munich and, um, you know, wasn't really surrounded by amazing entrepreneurs or technologists, but had some incredible role models in my sort of immediate circle of of, of influence, right? My grandpa was a... Um, was a world traveler. He had started from nothing after um, after the war, so World War II, and really built an incredible career, building you know pharmaceutical production facilities all over the world, and, and traveling in Asia and South America, and, um, and and really all over. And and that sort of it triggered the desire to to have a similarly international experience uh, in my own um, you know upbringing. So I spent a good bit of time already during high school um, here in the U.S. and then later during college years in um, Australia, in uh, Indonesia, where I worked for a nonprofit organization that was dedicated to the elimination of child labor on the Indonesian archipelago. My wife's half Indonesian, so um, so she was there with me during the time. And, um, yeah, and then, you know, just really 
sort of realized for myself that uh, that's that's what I wanted to do. Um, it also sort of nurtured the desire to do something about the uh, vast discrepancy in um, you know income and just access to many of the things that we, having grown up in Western Europe or in the United States, um, take for granted, right? Whether that's safety or uh, health, education, shelter. Um, the vast majority of people on this planet don't have access to that, and it's for no fault of their own. It's not that they're lazier or don't want to work hard, but it's simply that they were born in a hard place. Mm-hmm. And um, so those, you know, that exposure just created this desire to do something about that. And um, I didn't at first know how. Um, so after uh, after college, I, I joined McKinsey for a while, working as a consultant out of the Frankfurt office. And um, but realized that that really wasn't what I wanted to do in the long run. Um, so took some time off, worked with a friend on his startup in Singapore. That was sort of my first exposure to entrepreneurship. Uh, it was a job portal for for students, the largest student job portal in, in Singapore, and, and that went really well and was an amazing experience. Um, I uh, I then went to to grad school um, at Wharton to sort of get out of consulting and into doing my own thing. Didn't spend a minute on recruiting, but um, built a built a business during um, during school and then raised some venture money for that just before graduation. Um, that was also in sort of a retail a retail play omni channel. We had several stores and online selling um, apparel and accessories from small independent labels and designers. Was sort of a focus on U.S. made merchandise. And then I ran that for a couple of years and um, exited that in 2013. And that's when I teamed up with uh, my now co-founder here at Cotopaxi, um, who was also a working guy. And we started building, you know, a business in the outdoor space. So we design and manufacture outdoor apparel, packs, sleeping bags, tents, etc. But at the very core of the business is this idea that organizations, you know, have a responsibility to do more than just, you know, maximizing shareholder value. And um, and Davis, who was an entrepreneur before, had sort of a similar experience that, you know, as an individual, you can only do so much, no matter how high net worth you get. Um, so we really wanted to find a way with our businesses, with our organizations to to give in a sustainable way, in a way that wasn't disruptive to local economies, that but that truly, you know, sort of addressed the root causes of poverty in those communities. And yeah, so that's what sort of the driving force behind the organization to, you know, build an amazing, you know, outdoor brand, yes, for sure, and build a profitable outdoor brand, but then dedicate you know, a portion of these profits to uh, to poverty alleviation um, across the world. Stefan, when did you start Cotopaxi? Um, we started. We launched in April of 2014. Okay. So we're we're just three years old. So it's still fairly a new business, and you've had quite a bit of success. What were some of the key factors when starting out, Stefan, that you think led to the success that you guys have today? Yeah, I think one thing that we we take very seriously is um, sort of non-conventional, you know, customer acquisition. Um, so people call it growth hacking or whatever you may call it. But instead of relying on sort of traditional um, acquisition methods, such as, you know, Facebook advertising or Google or whatever it may be, um, we've always pushed ourselves and the team to, you know, find, you know, ways to do that uh, in a in a more affordable manner, um, and to like really push our cost of acquisition down by taking you know less conventional approaches. And one example would be our um, an event series that we launched called the Questival, where we uh, it's basically a 24 hour outdoor adventure race. Um, that's how we launched the brand was with one of these events on the day that we opened our website. 
We also had a big event here in Utah where we were based. Um, had about 1,500 people participate, and um, it's a 24-hour it's a adventure race, so we built an app that basically guides people through the experience and exposes them over that 24-hour period um, to the, the values that the brand stands for in terms of adventuring, in terms of spending time with your friends outdoors, um, making a fire without matches, um, doing good in the community, cleaning up a park, volunteering at a homeless shelter, things like that. And... Um, it was amazing to see, you know, that cohort of participants, um, they became such enthusiastic sort of brand supporters that we, we turned that initial launch event into a full series. So we're doing 60 of these events all across the U.S. this year wow. uh, and in Canada um, with typically participation between 1,000 to, in some cases, 4,000 people per event. And, um, and you know, these participants, they, they purchase a ticket to participate and then they get one of our backpacks, um, but the events are net profitable. So our cost of acquisition for that cohort of, of consumers is, uh, is negative, right? So they're essentially paying to get acquired. And so that's been a really, uh, an amazing way to you know, spread the brand in a new city and uh, do it in a very cost-effective manner. And, um, and, and that's, you know, we, and we love that, right? So these types of, um, you know, less sort of conventional, more creative ways of, of building the brand. And we do the same now. We, we just launched our first, opened our first physical retail store here in Utah and are really scrappy about how we like drive traffic to the store and, um, you know, participating in various events across the, across the city. Uh, we, we host yoga events in the store. We have, you know, hiking groups, um, just different activities to, to build community without, uh, and, and hence obviously that translates in sales over time, but really the objective is to inspire people for the brand, to inspire people to you know, be a part of the movement, to travel internationally, to connect with people and use our gear doing that, but it's a much more subtle sort of approach and uh, a much more scrappy approach than you know, hitting them over the head with uh, performance marketing. <laughs> Makes and, sense. Um, so I think that's, that's one. Um, the other is, you know, just you, you need to find, you know, obviously who you are as an entrepreneur and who you are as a brand. And that's different, obviously, on the category that you're in and, and what you're doing. But um, just really having a compelling and clean sort of value proposition that's differentiated, um, which in our case, you know, is, you know, a brand built around people, uh, built around humanity. Um, we're targeting a consumer that uh, has sort of been not ignored, but um, that other outdoor brands, legacy outdoor brands, have had a hard time sort of connecting with genuinely the sort of younger millennial consumer. And, um, and you know, we're aggressive in, you know, our color choices and our design, you know, language and the way we sort of like market uh, the brand um, to appeal to that, you know, to that, uh, that group and sort of speak their language. So uh, there's no golden bullet with that regard, right? But I think, you know, having a really clean, brand story that's that's real and that's genuine and that's not just sort of a marketing gimmick but that is sort of like deeply in, integrated into the fabric of the organization um, I think is key was that easy or difficult for you and your partner to get on the same page with the brand image not really we we're very different in, in many ways when it comes in with regard to like our skill set so it's very complementary in that sense um, but there is there's, there has been and is full alignment with regard to the values sort of that the brand stands for and the why of the brand, right? Finding a way um, uh, to sustainably alleviate poverty and reduce, 
you know the share of the population that lives under a dollar ninety a day, which is sort of considered the you know the poverty line, um, has dropped for the first time um, last year under ten percent um, from over seventy percent you know hundred years ago. So um, so tremendous progress that has been made, and we just want to you know help to continue that trajectory and push that number down further. So that's that's the why of the brand, and there was full alignment, and that's how we you know make our decisions. That's how we evaluate opportunities and um, so in that sense no it wasn't really hard right to agree on that because that's where we both came from uh, Davis had spent a considerable time in the developing world as well well mainly in South America and so he sort of had you know the same experiences and um, it doesn't mean that we agree on everything all the time right they're definitely different you know we just had a very long um, debate around one example right our maternity paternity policy right which is a big deal here in the US you know it's not very um, common for, in most organizations, right, to have very um, gracious uh, policy around that. So we had a long debate around that, like how do we structure it and what's right and fair and whatnot. Um, and, and, and But in the end, you know, we again sort of like brought it back to, hey, we want to be a leader, a thought leader in terms of like a corporate role model um, and, and hence let's agree on a policy that, um, that, that reflects that. And so, you know, I think our strong sort of value system and, and backbone really helps us make very concrete um, business decisions and uh, and helps to create that alignment and not just with you know between the founders but across the entire team I'm curious uh, if you care to share what did you guys decide on your policy yeah so we're doing which you always need to preface that right since you have an, a global audience um, <laughs> the policy you know with European eyes may sound um, very you know meager um, so we, we're doing 12 weeks paid um, for the primary caregiver, whether that's the dad or the mom, um, and then four weeks paid for the secondary caregiver, again, whether it's the dad or the mom, which um, normally here in the U.S. you have you know two to six weeks, um, which is crazy, quite frankly. I mean, mm-hmm. I, have, I have two kids, and like we, we all you know have families here, and it's crazy to go back to work after two weeks. That just creates so much yeah. stress on the, on the family. So, yeah, we're doing 12 weeks, and then we have um, – uh, what we call unlimited uh, responsible vacation policy. So we don't track how much time off people take um, as long as they, you know, figure it out with their respective teams and their and their managers. And so um, so people can take more time, which would then be unpaid um, if they need to. But um, but yeah, that's what we what we landed on, which is you know significantly above average, you know, for for the United States. Uh, it is not you know, nothing to write home about if you compare it to European standards. But um, that's that's what we landed on. You know, the policy of work that American businesses have is a lot of times almost annoyingly disgusting. I have a, a good friend who his, he was in his late 20s. His wife passed away with a baby. She was pregnant with a baby. And his company that he worked for, they gave him two weeks off. Yeah. And, I mean, no human being can be ready to go back to work after two weeks experience something yep. like that. And his company called in two weeks. They're like, Hey, you know, I know things are tough, but are you coming back? And he was like, screw you guys. You know, <laughs> He ended up taking a month off and then he was still pretty upset that he had to go back to work, but it's crazy that they have that in yep. place. Are you enjoying today's episode? I hope so. We're working hard to pick the minds of higher level entrepreneurs to bring you some applicable tactics for your business. October 26th through November 24th, we will have our most impactful event ever, 
four weeks in the northern mountains of Thailand with other successful entrepreneurs that have six and seven figures in annual revenue in their businesses. The experience includes private accommodations, workshops, masterminds, advisors, high-speed Wi-Fi at a beautiful resort complex. And for our listeners, we have a special $400 early bird discount for only 10 people. Once they're filled, they're gone. So if you're ready to seriously take your business to the next level, contact us at theentrepreneurhouse.com. And now back to the show. So I want to ask you, like the early days when you guys were starting up Questable and kind of using that for marketing, how did you guys come up with that idea? And then how did you guys reach your audience? Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was actually something that we had. So Davis and I, we met at, uh, at business school, right? We did a Wharton MBA and a master in international studies um, at the Lauder Institute at, at UPenn. Mm-hmm. And Lauder is this um, international you know, program um, with a very forward-thinking um, executive director. And um, we had suggested to put this race together for the students for credit. And the first race was um, from Belize to Panama. Uh, and it was a group of like 30 students. And you had to, there were different like activities and tasks that you had to accomplish to, you know, engage with the local population um, to, you know, really have these like cultural experiences. And, uh, and it was for credit and it was amazing. And um, so that was sort of the, the original idea that we saw how well this worked um, in that context and, um, and, and replicated that, you know, for, uh, for the company. Uh, in terms of how we marketed it, um, again, in a very scrappy manner, we didn't have a lot of money in the very beginning, like most companies. Um, we uh, bought two llamas off of uh, Craigslist. Um, they were like, mm-hmm. the llama is our logo animal, right? It's our mascot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we took those llamas and went on college campuses. And um, normally when you try to market something on a campus, uh, you know, you get shut down by campus security immediately. You can't hand out any flyers and you just get, you know, ushered off. Mm-hmm. But with these llamas, it was incredible. People were, were they're just so weird. And people <laughs> were surprised that we had, you know, campus police taking selfies with the llamas and just letting us be because they really didn't have a standard operating procedure, like how to deal with that lifestyle. <laughs> and um, so it, it, it was amazing. Like we had people like lining up and, you know, normally like when you try to hand out flyers, people are like, ah, oh, whatever, you know, and they like dump it in the, in the trash bin like uh, 10 yards further. Mm-hmm. But here we had people like coming up to us saying, hey, wh- what is this all about? Like, what do you guys do? And so you had your like 10 second window to, to you know, pitch. And um, so that was great. We did that on you know several campuses here around um, Salt Lake City, Utah, and uh, did a lot of. Um, we reached out to a bunch of professors, just went on university websites, and um, the, the sort of the founding team reached out to like marketing professors, entrepreneurship professors, social impact, um, etc., and said, "Hey, you know, we're entrepreneurs, experienced entrepreneurs, um, working on this new business." Is there anything that we can like do to help and speak to your class? And many of them said, oh, that's great. You know, they're always looking for guest speakers. And so we had a bunch of these speaking engagements on, on college campuses again. Uh, so that was really sort of our seating, um, like the group that we went after initially was these college students. And uh, yeah, ended up um, getting 1,500 of them to sign up for the first race. Wow. Uh, 
and then replicated that in San Francisco for our second festival. Uh, again, there we rented some llamas and again showed up on uh, on college campuses. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so that that's how we initially started out and, and seeded the brand was uh, through these very weird animals that are lovely and and you know we we still have those two llamas. They live on a little farm. And, um, you know, close by to our office, and we, we love them dearly. But, yeah, that's how we got started and got the word out initially. That's a genius. How much is a ticket for Questable these days? Um, starts typically at $25 and then goes all the way up to 50 Okay. Um, the closer you get to the event, you know, the, the ticket price increases. Now, how has your marketing, and I'm sure this has proven to be incredible marketing for you guys, but how has it changed over the past few years? Yeah, we're definitely doing, you know, more um, on, um, you know, again, there, there's no golden bullet, right, with regard to brand marketing. It's a constant sort of calibration of different activities. But we're definitely doing more on various fronts. We've um, started to do a physical catalog, which actually works surprisingly well. Uh, like it's a printed, old school physical catalog. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're seeing some great results with that. Uh, we are we are doing performance marketing at this point, um, but it's a very sort of you know s- smallerish budget, still experimenting a ton. And the beauty, obviously, of online is that you can measure and fine tune and double down on the campaigns that are working and kill the ones that aren't. Um, we still do Questable extensively. You know, we went from 15 events last year to 60 events this year, so that's still a big piece of you know our customer acquisition story. Um, we, uh, we just started doing wholesale. So we're in, uh, in all the REI stores here in the U S and Nordstrom and, uh, and, and various specialty retailers, which again, for us is a, is a customer acquisition, um, strategy mainly that's driving that to give people, you know, access uh, on the ability to touch our merchandise in markets where we don't have a physical presence ourselves yet. Um, we have a, a pretty robust group business where we co-brand our merchandise for organizations such as, you know, Google or um, Qualtrics or whatever, like large tech companies for user conferences um, where we put their logo next to ours and then every participant at the, at the conference gets, um, you know, one of our products. Um, and we, you know, experiment with like different ways to get that that person to, you know, know and learn about the brand and, and come back. And that's been been uh, really effective uh, in many cases. So yeah, it's a it's a constant, as I mentioned, a constant sort of you know mix um, that we we adjust um, and uh, just watch you know the the numbers and metrics very carefully. Um, but it's a pretty broad approach at this point. From physical over you know performance digital over you know the various sort of uh, distribution channel um, ways of, of acquiring customers. Now I know you guys have done some crowdfunding. Is Indiegogo the only platform you've used, or have you used others? No, we've done both Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Okay, out of the two, which one do you like better, and why? Um, it's hard to say. Kickstarter, uh, in terms of demographic, they're relatively similar. Um, Kickstarter skews a little more male. Um, Kickstarter is bigger, uh, so they have a uh, a bigger audience sort of built in, um, which is a blessing, but also a curse in the sense that they care less. So it's a little harder to get you know this uh, the sort of organizational support uh, in terms of marketing from Kickstarter um, for for a project. Uh, Indiegogo is a little smaller, 
Um, they've been a great partner for us. We, we've had success on both platforms. So I think it, it depends on like the product that you're um, that you're trying to build and so and and fund. Um, and, um, uh, and, and, you know, for us, it, both platforms have been successful. Uh, Indiegogo is the one where we had the biggest campaign. Uh, we just launched a, a travel bag about six weeks ago that raised um, over a million dollars um, on Indiegogo. And um, so they've been, yeah, a great, a great partner with that regard. But um, we will probably continue to work with both platforms depending on, um, you know, the product that we're launching. Congratulations on that launch, by the way. That's very impressive. Yeah, thank you. Stefan, I'd like to ask you, like, what are some of the strategies that you've used, and let's just use your most recent launch, that helped you guys be successful? Yeah, so there, you you know, you'll see there are a few things that help make a, a project successful. One is obviously you need product market fit, right? It needs to be a product that people actually want and need, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that holds true for not just crowdfunding, that just holds true for anything that you're trying to sell, right? Um, and we just, you know, with that travel bag, it is an awesome bag. Like I've traveling, been traveling with it extensively over the last six months when we were testing the prototypes in, in Asia and Europe and whatnot. And it is an amazing, amazing bag, best bag I've ever traveled with. So that, that's one, have an awesome product, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you um, ideally want to have a pre-built audience. So in our case, we leveraged our sort of our community of ambassadors, of customers that we had on you know all our other channels, and drove a ton of traffic from our website to the crowdfunding campaign. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a huge plus if you have an audience um, already from you know previous you know business activities, community building activities, and can direct them to the crowdfunding project to sort of kickstart it. Um, the third component is the sort of the platform itself, uh, Kickstarter, Indiegogo. They, you know, obviously do promotion for for projects via email, via placement on their homepage, etc. So building a relationship with their team um, to get that exposure, to let them know that this project is coming. They obviously, you know, monitor which projects are performing well and then are doubling down on those. But um, but that's definitely a big driver. And then the last is, you know. PR and marketing specifically for the campaign. So um, with PR, you know, seeding product in advance with the relevant outlets, um, with, you know, magazines, with, you know, publications that are relevant um, for the product and the space that have an audience that, you know, will hopefully resonate with it is a big piece. So we did a lot of product seeding and, you know, reach again, leveraging sort of the context that we had in, in that, you know, world, the media world, uh, for the outdoor and travel space, sending a bunch of samples out and just, you know, getting people to talk about and write about, um, the product itself. And then the, the last one would just be sort of performance marketing, um, for crowdfunding, actually Facebook is working really, really well for us. So just driving traffic, um, through, uh, through various Facebook campaigns. Did you do anything in this campaign, Stefan, that you would do differently next time? Um, I mean, this, this one worked, worked well for us. I think the more time you have to seed in advance, um, the better, which is hard to do because typically, you know, these, the whole point of these campaigns is to test the market to, um, you know, generate capital for the development of a product. So you, you oftentimes won't have everything, you know, in advance, 
But if you can figure out a way to get, you know, prototypes um, early and, and get them out into the world so that people get excited about it and talk about it and write about it, um, that's a big plus. So I think that's something that we would probably try to do even more of um, in the future. But uh, How do you guys choose? Now, I know you have charities that you work with and mm-hmm. donate a part of your revenue that goes to, to those charities. Yeah. How do you choose which charities to work with? Because yep. I, I think there's quite a few listeners that are kind of at that level or definitely want to get to that level where they can put a part of their revenue or their profits towards something good like this. So I'm, I'd like to know your guys' process on picking those out. For sure. Uh, yeah, so we uh, very early in the life cycle of the business brought on somebody to own that piece of the business um, our chief impact officer and um, she had you know deep experience in the field and really helped us structure this whole program in a way that really was geared towards getting to the root causes of poverty alleviation as opposed to just sort of a, a fix of some of the symptoms you know the way we we structure the program is that we have sort of three pillars um, which we um, which we support in terms of organizations and causes. One is in uh, education, where we focus on organizations that have a proven track record to improve primary literacy rate in communities. Uh, the second is health, where we work with organizations that have a proven track record to reduce child mortality under five child mortality. And then the third one is livelihoods, um, where we we run programs that basically um, uh, increase skills and the ability to be employed or start your own business and generate income. So those are, those three areas sort of have been proven to be the most um, impactful with regard to lifting a community out of poverty uh, in a sustainable long term manner. Um, so that's why we cho- chose those three in terms of how we then choose organizations that help us uh, improve. Um, you know, those factors in the different communities where we work, uh, that's a very careful vetting process. We, uh, we proactively evaluate and reach out to organizations uh, and invite them to, uh, to do grant applications. Uh, we don't accept sort of free flow applications from anybody. Um, we're proactive about it, and it's a very sort of careful vetting catalog of criteria that we go through uh, to evaluate whether an organization is, you know, has... Um, sound, you know, management, sound um, sort of financial backing where we're not a majority donor um, because that creates dependencies um, and, and various other factors that sort of go into the evaluation process of, of these organizations. Um, and then there's a very stringent reporting requirement um, with regard to impact reporting back to us and then back to our customers that, uh, that we put in place. One more question, Stefan, and I want to ask you, what are two or three tips that you would recommend to the listeners for creating a a seven-figure location independent business? So I think one is entrepreneurship can be really lonely, right? If you're in a a company, at least if you're in a good company, you'll have a mentor, you'll have a boss, you'll have an HR person and whatnot. As an entrepreneur, you don't have any of that. So creating a support network around you of like-minded and positive individuals who will, you know, help you get through the, the dark times that just come with, you know, the entrepreneurial, the roller coaster of, you know, I rule the world to what am I doing? I'm you know, wasting my life. Um, you need people around you that help you through that, that you can celebrate with when things go great and that can like help you and coach you through the, the less desirable times. 
Um, ideally, you know, a mentor who is, who is a couple of years ahead, but still close enough, you know, to understand sort of your emotional state of mind and, and sort of the challenges that you have. And then ideally somebody who is several years ahead, sort of the, who can like provide some wisdom and perspective from like 20,000 feet. So I think that's one. Um, I think the other is that you mentioned in the beginning, you know, choosing something that you're passionate about. There's a lot of debate whether that's necessary to be successful entrepreneurs. Um, there are definitely examples of people who just chose a great business opportunity and executed very well on it. Mm-hmm. And I think that works if you're, you know, if you're if you're hoping to create a, a quick win and a quick success and a quick exit. Um, you know, in our case, we're in this for the long haul. We want to build a, a large standalone entity so the next Patagonia um, for this younger generation and that means it will take time and we all know that our investors know that and if you're not passionate about what you're doing but you know that it's a five to ten year play or maybe even longer um, man that's hard if you're trying to like build something that you don't believe in or that's not you know true to who you are yeah um, so I think it, it does matter um, if it's um, you know, if it's something that, you know, you'll dedicate a, a good portion of your life to. And um, I think the third one to me would be sort of along the lines of like support network, but, um, you know, just make sure that your personal life supports your entrepreneurial endeavors, right? If you're married, make sure your wife's on board with it and uh, or, or your partner. And because um, it's really hard, right? If you don't have in your personal environment um, the support to you know, entrepreneurship is hard emotionally. It's, it takes a lot of time and effort at, at weird hours. It also offers a lot of flexibility, which is awesome. Um, but at the same time, yeah, having having the personal sort of support um, from your immediate family, I think, is, is really important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, too. Stefan, we're going to wrap up there. If the listeners want to reach out to you and learn more about Cotopaxi or Questable, where could they do that? Yeah, uh, yeah totally. I mean, obviously... With regard to the organization, you can follow us on the various you know social media channels. We have um, an ambassador uh, program that we're rolling out. Um, so yeah, just go to the website and like, you can find all the different like links um, on there. Uh, for me personally, I'm very happy to help with uh, with anything really. So um, you know, feel free to have listeners reach out. It's just Stefan at Epoxy, so really easy uh, via email to reach out. Excellent. And we want to give you a huge thank you for coming on the show, my friend. Thank you for sharing your tips and your tricks and all your wisdom and spending your time with us today. So thank you very much. Yeah, you bet, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. And listeners, we're going to wrap up there today. Thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for six and seven figure entrepreneurs. Imagine spending an extended period of time with other successful entrepreneurs working together and growing your business. Day to day, you interact with other driven and smart business people. Spending an extended period of time around them alters your business and your mentality around business. Goals are set, business grows, new partnerships develop, greater profit margins are achieved, the productivity skyrockets for attendees, and you get to have an incredible adventure while doing it. This year, our main event will be held in Chiang Mai, Thailand. It is four weeks from October 26th to November 24th and held for six and seven figure entrepreneurs only. It will be full of workshops, masterminds, advisors, co-working, and fun weekend social events. Be sure to check out the details at theentrepreneurhouse.com as soon as possible. This event will fill up fast. For those of you that are interested and have some questions, be sure to contact us through theentrepreneurhouse.com forward slash contact. We will respond as soon as possible. For now, saludos from somewhere in the world.